Good morning. Hello, hello. My name's Chad Myers. I'm our Adult Discipleship Director. It's good to be with you this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us online. I'm so grateful for our worship team and our production team and just goodness, just being in it this morning in the midst of worship and uh, enjoying that. And Jeff, thank you for the prayer time and the excitement that Jeff brings. Did you see him kind of set that song up? He was excited, wasn't he? He was excited because that was his suggestion. He wanted to do that, so he loves that song. I saw him over there, and he was kind of, he was getting into it. It was the closest I've ever seen Jeff dance. And uh, I, I really, I don't know if you're here, Jeff, or if you're skipping out on my message, but uh, uh, I, I love Jeff, and here's why. Here's why I love you, Jeff, because you, you believe that. Like 52 years ago, you had an encounter with Jesus, and your life was changed. And one of the reasons I deeply respect Jeff is because he sincerely believes what we're doing here. He sincerely believes what we sing here and what we say here. He's not perfect, but he sincerely loves Jesus. Yeah, come on. A little love for Pastor Jeff. Um, unless you're skipping out on my message, then we'll have to have words. <laughs> uh, and those of you joining us online, welcome. We did a men's event a few weeks ago, and uh, we had about 300 men in this room. It's just an incredible event. And I was outside greeting some people, you know, like the guys say hello. We were you know, pounding it and high-fiving and doing like the man hug. Like, you know, you go in like, boom, and then you, oh, like a man, it's a safe hug. It's not two-handed hug. You know I mean? It's a safe man hug. Like we're, you know, and uh, these guys are walking by me and one dude just says to me as he walks in, I have no idea who it is. He walks by and he goes, you look taller on TV. It was brilliant. I started cracking up. It was a great one-liner. Uh, so uh, those of you watching on TV, my TV height is 6'2". It's 6'2". Uh, I can dunk on TV and I can bench press 250 on TV. So just so you know, apparently uh, in person, I am unimpressive. <clears throat> so if we've never met, then you might need to keep it that way or your hopes and dreams will be shattered. <clears throat> Sorry to disappoint you. Uh, <laughs> I have a bit of an unpopular message today. We're in the Gospel of Mark, and we're continuing our series, Encountering Jesus. And my friend's in the back, just before I came up, leaned over, and he said, what's the message on today? And I said, hypocrisy. <laughs> so we will have some tough things to talk about, but keeping in step with the brilliant theologian, Mary Poppins, I hope to give some sugar to help the medicine go down. It's gonna feel a bit prophetic. And by that, I don't mean uh, telling you about events in the future, but saying some hard things that probably we all need to hear. And we need to hear these from time to time. Uh, a trip to the prophets is like a trip to the doctor. You, know, you ever notice how the doctor can really get away with some brutally honest things? You come in and you write down your height, your TV height and your real height, and then you write down your weight, and they look at your chart and you go in and they're like, hey, I seen you gain 15 pounds. Thank you. I see that too every day. Hey, how's your eating habits going? Still uh, cheeseburgers and ice cream? Yes. Are you exercising? Oh, not so much. Are you depressed? What? You see, how, how did we get here? And they can just get away with some really honest questions and finding out what's really going on in our life. But they ask because they care. And we may not leave the doctor or a visit to the prophets lifted up, but we might feel, even today, as we leave, we might feel a bit cleaner and a bit closer to God and a bit closer to ourselves. 
And that's what I hope today. And this is not a top-down, let me tell you. This is a, hey, we're all in this together, and let's listen to what God might have to say to us today. I'd like to start off with a quote, and then a question, and then our passage. And the quote is from Thomas Merton. And yeah, oh, there it was. I have to find it again. The quote is from Thomas Merton in New Seeds of Contemplation. It's also on the screen. It says this, all sin starts with the assumption that my false self, the self that exists only in my egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. All sin starts with the assumption that my false self, the self that exists only in my egocentric desires, is the fundamental reality of life to which everything else in the universe is ordered. Merton had a core notion of sin. He was a monastic and a great writer, thinker. And he, his definition of sin was that we would live a life committed to the false self instead of our true self. Who God really created us to be and the dreams and desires and longings that he's placed inside of us, that we would live more out of ego than essence. And so my question for us today is, are we living in accordance with our true self or our false self? Because that's the deepest notion of hypocrisy that we can see. Listen to Mark 7, 1 through 23. Yes, all 23 verses. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, not just for hygiene holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Can you imagine just watching this? Jesus calling them to task. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're entrenched in the false self. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone that curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother financially is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? What a question. <laughs> he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, 
lewdness. I feel like you have to drag that one out if you're going to say it. Envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. When we encounter Jesus, we encounter our own hypocrisy. Because Jesus is the really real. He's real capital R. There's no split in him. There's no division in him. He is whole, fully God, fully man. He is the most human of humans that had existed post-Adam. And when we encounter that type of authentic reality, we start to see our own hypocrisy. We start to see our own split self. The people expected Jesus to come as a revolutionary. This is the messianic expectation. You are supposed to come, and Israel has been oppressed. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. We have lived under the yoke of these powerhouses, and we need to be liberated. So the expectation was for a physical revolution, overthrow this oppressor, Rome. But you notice how little Jesus talked about that revolution, if at all. And he talked about a revolution of the heart. See, Jesus came to overthrow the kingdom of the false self. Jesus came to overthrow the kingdom of the false self. Augustine said it like this, how can you draw near to God when you are far from yourself? Oof. That was a good one. How can you draw near to God when you're far from yourself? How can we really meet God when what we are projecting to him and others and ourselves is like a 3D image that we we put our best selves out there and we want people to notice us and know us and maybe accept us and that that self is is nice and doesn't put too many expectations on anybody else and is, is not needy and is not afraid or insecure, and we put that self out there, but then we wonder why we don't feel close to God or close to anyone else or close to ourselves. We wonder why we feel alone, and we wonder why we feel unknown. And, 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 And when we live out our hypocrisy, our Christian faith is like a thin veneer where if you just pulled back the layers, you might find something startling inside. It's like the ice that just has barely formed. It's a layer of ice, but it can't hold too much weight. And Jesus wants to challenge us because he loves us, but cleanse us and help us to move closer to reality. If you see today, I would argue that many of the conversations happening around religion, around politics and social media, it's all ego-based. It's blame-shifting, it's fear, it's accusation, it's name-calling, it's belittling, it's fighting, it's bickering. Friends, that's all ego. And once you start to notice it, once you recognize it, you'll stop engaging in it. Once you recognize it, you just might stop engaging in it. Once we interact with the real, 
we don't want anything else. I remember when we first started ministry, we were making um, like 21,000 a year and we were working at this church and uh, we were, had a really tight budget. And so I don't know about you, but I grew up with grilled cheese and tomato soup as a viable option for a dinner. And as a kid, I just love grilled cheese and tomato soup, but we had Campbell's soup. That's the real soup. It's Campbell's soup. It's the authentic soup. Good, I'm not getting any pushback in here. That's what I like to hear, right? And so when we were first married, I said to my wife, I said, you know, you know we don't have to do anything fancy. Sometimes grilled cheese and tomato soup, that'll do it. That's a go-getter. And, uh, you know, she was being thrifty. So in order to save money, she bought the off-brand tomato soup. And I didn't know it. I love you, sweetheart. You're doing a great job. I didn't know it. And so I sat down and I took my grilled cheese and I dipped it in that off-brand tomato soup and I put it in my mouth and I put my spoon down and I says, what kind of soup is this? (laughs) I don't eat it if it ain't Campbell's. We long for the real, the authentic, and much like our experiences and encounters with Jesus, like once, did he just go from tomato soup to Jesus? I think he just did. Can he get away with that? We'll see. Uh, Once we encounter the authentic, we don't want anything else. Once you taste, you can't untaste. Once you see, you can't unsee. So a few things that I wanna observe from this passage today when we encounter Jesus and we live out of the true self, you choose relationship over religion. You choose relationship over religion. Mark has been showing us that growing opposition has been happening to Jesus. He's, it's gonna be a key theme in his gospel. He will, uh, chapter one, there's no opposition. The crowd, the family, uh, everybody's astonished by Jesus. He's working miracles. Uh, he teaches in a synagogue in Capernaum and you, it, it's packed out. There's no seats left and they are astonished. This guy teaches as one who has authority, not like our other religious teachers. They're so excited. All of a sudden, chapter two happens and there's this seed of opposition and the religious leaders are questioning in their hearts. Now we get into chapter three and the religious leaders are questioning the disciples and his family starts to think that Jesus is out of his mind and there's these growing concerns with what Jesus is really doing and who he is and what he's about and there's this theme about opposition that's going to build and build and build and finally Jesus encounters this opposition here with the Pharisees calling to task Jesus' disciples. Why don't your disciples cleanse their hands? Before they eat. Now, this is not like moms and dads that say, wash your hands. And you know, you know your kids don't wash their hands in the bathroom, right? You know they're smarter than that. They just turn on the water. Then they turn it off. And then they come in and they touch all the food. I'm just telling you. I've seen kids do it. It's not like that. This is about ceremonial cleansing. You're not clean before God unless you wash these hands before you eat. This was their tradition. And see what they do here. They ask Jesus, why are your disciples on the out? Why are you on the out? I've heard someone say that religion is really concerned with who's in and who's out. I would like to nuance that just a bit and say this. Religion is mostly concerned with who's out. You're out. You're out. 
you're out. You don't do it right. You don't think like me. You don't talk like me. You don't go to the same place of worship as me. You don't go to a place of worship at all. You're out. You're out. You're out. And they start to question Jesus, why are you out? When you look up the dynamics of a healthy relationship, some of the things that start to come to mind takes time. Think about the relationships that you're in, friends, family, married, engaged. Takes communication. Communication's a two-way street. You gotta, you gotta talk, you gotta share, disclose things. You gotta listen. It takes trust. You have to trust the intentions of the other person. You have to trust the relationship that it can even hold both of you as saints and sinners. It takes vulnerability. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Ooh, that one hurts. It's intimacy. And there's no wonder why a part of the human heart doesn't want anything to do with that because that's super messy and very risky. And there's a large part of the human heart that would love to just have everything in an incubator, insulated, and controlled test environment. And if I do this, then this is the outcome, and you got to play by these rules too. And that's religion. In order to have religion, you, you, you need belief in the supernatural. You need ritual acts based on sacred times, objects, and places. You need a, co a code of morality with supernatural origin, a social group bound together. When I list those things, what do you typically not hear? The personal nature. God is always about being personal in our relationship with him, not private. I was sitting at um, our dining table this week working on this message and our 15-year-old was sitting across from me down on the other end and I said, hey, help me out with something. I'm trying to think this through. I need some good ideas. I said, what's the difference between like religion and relationship? And we started to hash this out. We started to talk about it. And uh, she goes, well, when you're describing it, it sounds like this. It sounds like religion is really only a one-way street and there's actually no relationship in it at all. And I was like, wait, say that again. And so she said it again. And I was like, oh, that's gold. And she's, she's always the one who complains about not getting into my sermons. And I was like, well, if you give me more gold like this, you'll get more into my sermons. But you are in a relationship in religion. You're in a relationship with self, with all your expectations and your perfectionism and your performance-driven mentality. But you don't really need God or anyone else. The heart of religion is the business of the false self. I will just set up my rules, I will just keep my rules, and I will just keep on keeping my rules so that I will get a nice, neat outcome. And God says, I'm much more dangerous than this. I want you to risk relationship with me and whew, relationship with each other. Being known and knowing the heart of religion is the business of the false self and the false self is rooted in fear. It's rooted in fear. There was a, a tour, a group of tourists who went to New York City and, and this specific day they were going out of the city to the beautiful New York countryside and there was a, a, 
rolling hills and there was actually a pasture with sheep in it and they were gonna get out and they were gonna go through the pasture and they were able to be around the sheep. And the tour guide said to them, when you approach the sheep, walk slowly and do not be too loud and be gentle because if you frighten them, they won't come to you. And fear and love could not be further apart. If love drives relationship, fear drives religion. And sometimes I'm just so afraid that I just need to keep on doing what I know and jumping through my own hoops as opposed to the real risky business of relationship. We choose relationship over religion when we're living out of our true self. We also place precepts over preferences. Precepts over preferences. A precept is a command of God. It's a law of God. A preference is just that. It's a preference. And the Pharisees uh, get, get called out by Jesus here because they have nullified the, the word of God, the law of God, because they have said, you know what? In the Old Testament, you could set aside money, finances dedicated to the temple. And once it was dedicated to the temple, you, you, you didn't have to spend it. You didn't have to give to the temple at that time. It could just be dedicated in the future. Then that was kind of untouchable. But Moses said, you have to take care of your father and your mother. So if you can imagine in that world, no healthcare system, people getting older, they need to be taken care of. Then it falls to the children of the older parents to take care of them. And so they were responsible for that. And Moses said, this is how you honor your father and mother. But the Pharisees have figured out a trick. And they say, well, what if we just take that and we dedicate it to the temple? Then we don't have to use our money to help out father and mother. And if anybody comes to us, then we can kind of find this little loophole in the law. And you think about it and you hear about it. You're like, man, that's kind of sick. Jesus says, that's exactly right. It's an illness. It's an illness. But that's what legalism does. Legalism tries to take God's law and make it more specific. Like, oh yeah, you love your neighbor, but yeah, what does that actually mean? Like, let's, let's define it. Let's get really crystal clear on that. And then we have our preferences, but we're not to place our preferences above our precept. You have worship preferences, right? You have preferences of how people should look when they come to church, go to a Bible study. You have preferences of what? Type of music or media people should watch or, or listen to. We have preferences. But that's what they are. They're preferences. We're not supposed to place them above God's law. Jesus says this. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. The prophets speak purification to the people of God because they call us to a life of integrity. Now, when you go through the prophets and you hear the harsh and sometimes harsh sounding words that they say, you have to know that it's from a broken heart. That, that God's people think that they can keep ritual regulations and be and treat their neighbor as they want or treat the outcast or the marginalized and the poor as, as however they want to and still be fine. And God says, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. 
In fact, you read all through the prophets. That's, that's one of the primary sins of the nation of Israel is abusing the sacrificial system. Well, God will forgive me. God will forgive me. God will forgive me. I'll live however I want. Saturday comes, God will forgive me. And I want to be really clear here because sometimes we take this and we say, well, then, you know, uh, ceremony's bad, ritual's bad, you know, written down prayers or types of baptism, the formality. Well, let's get rid of the formality and let's just go to the other side. And I don't think that's right because God is not opposed to ceremony, but hypocrisy. God is not opposed to ceremony. These are conduits and measures of grace that he's given to us. These are ways that he said, this is how I have confined myself to work. And when we're living out of our true self, we place precepts over preferences. When we encounter Jesus as really real, we also tell the truth to ourselves. We also tell the truth to ourselves. I'm gonna give you what 10 years of therapy taught me. I'll save you 10 years and loads of money, all right? Be honest with yourself about your fears, about your dreams, about your thoughts, about your hurts, about what you really think about yourself and God. Be honest with yourself. Because Isaiah is saying something here, these hearts that are living out of false self are far from God, but he knows this, a heart that is far from God is a heart far from self. Uh, I went to a concert recently. Jeff went to a concert. Apparently, it's concert season. And uh, I went to a concert, the Avett Brothers. Uh, me and my youngest daughter, well, not my youngest, my second youngest, went to the Avett Brothers. And uh, I, I love them. I love their lyrics. Uh, I love their songs. And we drove out, is this outdoor amphitheater, and they're supposed to come on at 7, but about 7.10, this, this rainstorm came in, and we just get completely soaked which for her, that was really exciting because she was young and has lots of energy. And uh, she was like, this is a great experience. And for me, I was like, I'm wet and cold and starting to get very frustrated. (laughs) But finally they came out and they played two and a half hours of just brilliant music and we had a great time. And I wanna read the lyrics of one of their songs that I love. It says this, tell the truth to yourself and the rest will fall in place. Tell the truth to yourself, and the rest will fall in place. I lied to the doctor. I lied to my lover. I wanna make amends, but where do I start? Tell the truth to yourself, and the rest will fall in place. Often we focus on the lie as an act, but the lie as a source is because fundamentally I haven't told the truth to myself. Mark 7, 17 says this, after he'd left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them for it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them for it's from within out of a person's own heart that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. 
The false self actually, because it resists honesty, the false self actually thinks that it can manage sin. That, oh, I just rearrange a few things and maybe I'll just clean up my mouth a little bit and clean up the people I hang out with. And if I go to church twice a month and I give a little bit, I will just clean up my life and I will manage the sin. And Jesus says, whew, I think that's a misdiagnosis. I think that's a misdiagnosis. I played soccer my senior year of high school. It wasn't really my sport. I played other sports, but then I quit, but I wanted to play another sport, so I tried out for the soccer team, and I made the team, and about four games in, I was starting. I played defense because my foot skills are terrible, uh, but I was fast enough to play defense, and we're playing in this tournament, and I remember, uh, you know, the ball coming this way, the offense was challenging us, the ball coming this way, and I plant on my right leg to cut and to go, you know, save the ball, essentially, And I remember planning like this and this opponent running into me and I planted and my knee just completely buckled inside. And I blew out ACL, MCL, meniscus. I fell down on the ground. I didn't swear, I didn't. I knew some of you were wondering that. And I fell down on the ground and I was in pain. And they stopped the game and they get me off to the sideline and the trainer came over to me and the trainer comes and does that, you know, knee test and, and they say this to me, you just got a bruised kneecap. I was like, it does not feel like a bruised kneecap. I mean, I'm no doctor. But I stood up, and as I stood up, my whole knee went this way, and I fell down. Confirming, that's not a bruised kneecap. (laughs) Went to several doctors. At first, it was that, and then it was, well, I think you tore your MCL. Finally, went to a sports specialist, and they finally said, no, 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 no. You tore everything. We had to get the right diagnosis in order for the proper prescription. Jesus says, I don't care if you've been a Christian five minutes or 50 years, if you're an incredible pastor or if you're a Sunday school teacher or if you're a small group leader or you serve every time the the church doors are open or if you give 20% of your income, this stuff still comes out of our hearts. All of us are in this together. Jesus says, tell the truth to yourself about the sinful nature. May it be a proper diagnosis so that we can get a proper prescription. And when we start to be honest about those places, then then Jesus really comes in and brings healing. Then Jesus comes in and really starts to do some transformative work, but he won't break down the door, not until we're ready to be honest about those places. Lastly, when we live out of the true self, we stop judging those who judge. We stop judging those who judge. It's easy for me to look at the Pharisees and even look at modern-day Pharisees and you know, when it kind of smells like self-righteousness and you start to detect it and you're like, man, you're really into yourself. This feels less like a God experience, more like an ego trip type thing. And you start to notice that more and more and more. But the temptation then is to then judge those that judge. Flannery O'Connor, towards the end of her life, great 
Southern Catholic writer, towards the end of her life, got very pronounced about her themes that became more and more explicitly faith-driven. And she wrote a short story called Revelation, uh, in which Ruby Turban is the protagonist. And Ruby Turban is a smug, self-righteous Southern woman, and she is used to being in places and categorizing people. And she even finds herself in the doctor's office, and she looks around, and she categorizes people, you know, based on if they can't keep their life together, or they can't parent, or what race they are, or if they're white trash or not. And she always categorizes herself at the front of the line. A few events happen, and then she goes back home, and she's troubled, and she has a revelation. And in this revelation, she sees this great bridge from earth going up to heaven. But underneath that bridge is like a field of burning fire. And when she looks at the people on that bridge, she is scandalized. Because in O'Connor's words, it's the white trash, it's the freaks, it's the lunatics, it's the people of different races, people who couldn't keep their life together. And then at the very end, it's people like her making their way across the bridge toward eternity. And O'Connor describes it like this. She could see by their shocked and scandalized faces that even their virtues were being burned away. And even all of their goodness as they were going into eternity was being purified and judged away. And when we encounter Jesus for who he really is, we don't play the judge anymore because we don't need to. We're tired of it. We know it doesn't actually bring energy and life to us. So we stop. Jesus wants us to live less hypocritically. I say we're all hypocrites to some degree. He wants us to live closer to our authentic self, to come out of the shadows, to stop living a life that is committed to the false self. There's a movie I'd like to close with, just some part of the script. It's a Nicolas Cage movie, so <laughs> there you go. Can you really close with a Nicolas Cage movie? That'll crash. It's a movie where he plays a washed up, burnt out chef. He lives alone in the woods. Nobody knows him anymore. But he's got this pig as a pet and it's a truffle pig. And this pig is brilliant at finding truffles. Well, this restaurant owner in town hears that he's got this brilliant truffle pig and steals it, beats him up. Cage goes to the restaurant because he has a good suspicion that that's where his pig is. And he sits down and after confronting openly, hey, do you have my truffle pig? The owner dodges it quite a bit, but he sits down. And finally, Cage says this, what's the concept here? Uh, well, it's, uh, we're interested in taking local ingredients native to this region and just deconstructing them, you know, like making the familiar feel foreign and, and, and giving us a greater appreciation of food as a whole. Cage says, this is the kind of cooking that you like? It's, it's cutting edge. It's very exciting. Exciting. I, I mean, everybody loves it. You like cooking it? Absolutely. Derek. What was it you always used to talk about opening? Wasn't it a pub? Every, every, everyone loves it here. This is, a, this is a, a huge success. 
why didn't you open your pub? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. That, I don't know that that's what I really wanted. I mean, I mean, that was that was such a long time ago. When I fired you, I asked you what you wanted to do. You said you have a few rooms upstairs, a real English pub. Did I did I say that? Yes. Nobody wants a pub around here. That's a that's a that's a terrible investment. What was going to be your signature dish? Liver scotch eggs with a honey curry mustard. Derek, they're not real. You get that, right? None of it is real. The critics aren't real. The customers aren't real because this isn't real. You aren't real. Derek, why do you care about these people? They don't care about you. None of them. They don't even know you because you haven't shown them. Every day you'll wake up and there will be less of you. You live your life for them and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. When we encounter Jesus, he invites us to eye contact. And he wants to fix his gaze upon who we really are. The question is, will we have the courage to meet him there? Say, this is who I really am. I want to live a life committed to who you've made me and remade me to be. Burn away everything else. Burn away the lies. Burn away my commitment to the lies and the false self. Let me be who you really have called me to be. That's what an encounter with Jesus will do. Let's pray. Father, tough words, hard things to hear, hard things to say, but I hope purifying things things that cut through all of the distractions, all of the constructs that we set up, all the things that we think are our real hopes and dreams, things that cut through everything that we thought would give us meaning and power and significance. You cut straight through it with the scalpel of your spirit. And it hurts, but we're grateful Father, help us. For those of us who went immediately to shame, I pray that we wouldn't. I pray that you'd pick us up. Help us hear that these words come from a place of deep love and compassion, not condemnation. For those of us who need to be disturbed, disturb us. For those of us who are so comfortable and committed that these words may have fallen flat, Father, sometimes it takes a crisis. Only you know. Speak to us, we pray, until all that we long for is Jesus himself. In Christ's name.